When you think of great duos, who do you think of? Jordan and Pippen or LeBron and Dwayne Wade. I mean, I talk about basketball a lot here on this podcast, but for the Barcelona version, there's PK and Puyol or PK and Mascherano or the easy example of Xavi and Iniesta. And as you can hear from my voice, the perfect teammates aren't just professional athletes. It's cold season. I guess the flu and cold medicine, perfect teammates as well. But in this case, when it comes to growing your business, that's you and Shopify. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. To be honest, I've been doing this show long enough. And as I mentioned, it's cold and flu season. You hear it in my voice, especially during the holiday season. So whenever it comes to this business, anything that I can set up and kind of have working in the background that I know and can trust is just plugging along without my attention. Those are the things that I really value at this point. So when my brain is foggy, all I can do is manage to turn on the microphone, talk to the guest, or just talk to myself and get out a piece of content. Everything else, having that all automated or working in the background, that's been important to keeping me sane. And that's the thing about something like Shopify. What I do love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. So no matter how big or small, how good of a month or how bad of a month, things are just the same working in the background. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is a global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs on every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tbpod, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash tbpod now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash tbpod. Welcome to the Barcelona Podcast, episode 109, Unmissable Opinions, brought to you by the most influential voices in the FC Barcelona community. I'm Dan Hilton, joined by my guest co-host for the day. It's Emma Gabrielle Garcia, at E.M. Gabrielle Garcia on Twitter, or at Emma Gabrielle Garcia, so that's her full name, on Instagram. Emma, it is the international break. Now, this is our second show during the international break. How are you faring without FC Barcelona football? Oh, it's a struggle every day. For Catalan, it's very difficult with international football because we don't really support Spain. So I don't really have a lot to go on right now. And I miss Barcelona very much. Yeah, it's true. In the Spanish national team, we're only seeing Sergio Busquets, who is involved in that loss to England. But there were a ton more Real Madrid players involved in that. So I guess we'll throw our Real Madrid dig in early on the show. We might have a few <laughs> later on, too. But we'll see if we can... Uh, Again, continue to get some digs in at Real Madrid as we try to answer La Gran Pregunta today. And today is a traditional show with La Gran Pregunta and La Ronda. But first, the big question of the day today that I brought Emma to talk about is, are rich clubs bigger threats in the Champions League or the transfer market? And the reason that this is coming up, let's start here with the headlines from the last week. And the papers that cover Barcelona and sport in particular, which always gets a lot of flack for being more sensationalized than it should be, but at times sport winds up being right on the money. So it's a difficult balance to try to figure out whether or not sport and, and particularly Mundo Deportivo are respectable papers in Barcelona, They're the two biggest in the city. So you'd think that they were be the best on the beat and have the most reliable news. That's not always the case. And one of the reasons you know that 
is over the last week now, sport in particular has had 15 different stories run about either one of or both of the Dutch Ajax players that we've talked about here on the show, but we're really going to focus on today, and that being Matthias De Ligt and Frankie de Jong, the center back and midfielder, well, midfielder slash center back, respectively. And unlike Ousmane Dembele and Felipe Coutinho, with whom Barcelona seem to be bidding against themselves, there isn't a major club in the world who's willing to sit out the fight for these two in the upcoming transfer window. Apparently, everyone trying to at least weigh in on one of them, whether it's Man United and Juventus going after De Ligt, Man City going after both, PSG reportedly going after De Jong. It seems like all the major clubs are trying to weigh in. And the reason we're getting to the root of this and the reason we're getting to this question as well is that the club that has risen to the top of the threat ladder not for Barcelona in terms of the Champions League, but in terms of the players that Barcelona are trying to earmark early and future world talents are trying to bring in, is Man City. Managed by Pep Guardiola, led by the club sporting director and former Barcelona player and Barcelona director in Chiqui Bidgerston, and backed by owner Sheikh Mansour, Deputy Prime Minister of the UAE, and Chairman Khaldun Al-Mubarak, co-founder of the City Football Group. They seem to be the threat there for a lot of different reasons. And, you know, Emma, I'll throw it over to you now, is that with these two promising talents, the first question we'll ask is, how important is it for Barcelona to wrap these two up? And what kind of flack should there be given if other clubs wind up swooping in and getting these two talents? These two are incredible talents, and we do need to... I think it's really important that we get at least one of them. Delicht, probably, more than de Jong. Yeah, it's it's a difficult one because what the the it depends what they're motivated by, I guess. Because if they're motivated by money, then they're going to be turned by Manchester City and Paris Saint Germain. Whereas we don't really have that kind of firepower in that kind of regard, but we have you know we have history, we have uh, the chance to win things, we have. The chance to play with, you know, the greatest player of all time, Lionel Messi. Um, I, I think uh, I read that De Jong said that he would like to play for Barcelona. Yeah, so uh, I think it would be a major misstep if we don't secure at least one of them. Maybe on a pre-contract agreement before the, uh, before the summer, that would be ideal. Whether that could happen, I've heard reports. Um, uh, one of their agents is uh, uh, Mino Raiola, I think. Yeah, who, the, the uh, legs, yep. Yeah, um, uh, and the other one is a, a guy that Barcelona, I don't think, have uh, dealt with before, but uh, Delicht, his agent is Raiola, and um, they have good uh, relationship with him. Um, so that's probably going to be the easiest one to get over the line, I think. Yeah, you're referring to uh, Raman Planes, who was sent to Germany to watch the, the game from between the Netherlands and, and Germany. And, and Planes, who is the technical secretary, the assistant to Eric Abidal, he apparently does have a good relationship with Riola, and that could help in those kind of negotiations. Riola, however, is also the same agent of Paul Pogba and Zlatan Ibrahimovic and a ton of other uh, Mario Balotelli. When you talk about guys that get major money and uh, negotiations that are never easy, he seems to be at the center of a lot of them. So even though they have a good relationship, uh, they, money winds up being at the forefront of any deal involving uh, Riola. And the reason we, we go back to Man City, and you talked about that pre-contract, and that it was a good shout there, because 
that's apparently what has kind of been discussed between both Barcelona and Ajax and Man City and Ajax. So nothing has ever been agreed. Uh, Beger Stein has already reportedly traveled to Amsterdam to meet with Ajax sporting director Mark Overmars, who you know we we covered on the show before as being a former Barcelona player. Um, former Arsenal player as well, and has had a little bit of relationship with FC Barcelona, but more so with his primary club, the one that he grew up with, the one that he won the Champions League with, and that being Ajax. But in that meeting between City and Overmars, City doesn't worry about price in those kind of situations. They can offer $80 million right off the bat, which is reportedly what they did, and they would allow De Jong to stay in the Netherlands through the rest of the campaign. And apparently the first time that Robert Fernandez, now departed sporting director at Barcelona, lined up a deal before he left, the amount was not to Overmars' liking. And Barcelona, as we saw with the Coutinho and Liverpool saga, they're not one to throw the big money out first, particularly if they're bidding only against themselves. And in this case, they're not. But because Barcelona have insane amounts of money, they still don't have the money to start that bidding at an amount that prices out every other club in the world, sans basically Man City, PSG, and Real Madrid. Because I even think about Bayern Munich, who are not known to spend exorbitant amounts of money on transfers and prefer to get their players for free transfers from under other Bundesliga clubs. Even in, even Real Madrid, the way that they've conducted their business recently, we'll call it the post-Galacticos era, where they're snatching up a lot of this young Spanish talent, um, not from Barcelona, but whether it's Asensio or Ceballos, they're looking to try to strengthen their squad with young Spanish players locally, and those are usually reduced fees, and we know that Spain have a hard time, Spanish clubs in particular have a hard time keeping their their own players because all you have to do is pay that release clause, and there's really no negotiating that the other club can do. Um, and with all that said, it does make City just a force to be reckoned with because of negotiations. And and, and so, Emma, you put yourself in, in their shoes if you're Ajax, that you have a club that comes in and goes, okay, you can basically, you call the, the terms of this deal. Well, De Young can stay here. Delic can stay here if, if they want until the summertime. We're going to still give you $80 million up front. And here's, this, here's where we start. This is our starting point. And sometimes, not that it even comes just to money, but if that's the negotiations and if it works for all the parties, it really does come down to just the players, just the young, as you mentioned, to say, no, I'd rather go to Barcelona. That's why I want to go. And then it's up to the club to figure out whether or not they want to work with the players' wishes. Right. Um, it will be difficult for Ajax to turn down the amount of money that Manchester City can throw at them. I guess it's going to be a considerable more amount uh, than we can. Well, I think... Uh, well, that we want to, I think is probably more accurate. Yeah, but I think the players themselves, I don't know so much about De Ligt. I know more about De Jong, and I know that he has said in the past he's expressed a desire to join Barcelona uh, when our interest was first uh, uh, talked about with him. Um, and I did read a, a story about uh, that he was going to have a meeting uh, personally with uh, over Mars to uh, remind him of the promise that he made him uh, about letting him uh, join Barcelona, whether that be in January or the summer. I imagine it will be in the summer. I'm not a big fan of uh, the January transfer market. The prices are always overinflated uh, because it's kind of a desperation window. Uh, I don't really know too much about De Ligt. I don't know what his, his situation is. Um, I don't know if he's ever expressed a desire to join Barcelona, but 
to join Manchester City, the champions of England, um, and who are probably going to be a force to be reckoned with in the Champions League this year. And to work with Pep Guardiola, it's going to be difficult to turn down. Yeah, and I, I think we've heard a lot on social media in the last few days and even weeks that why do Kules in particular on social media always find their eyes drifting towards players not at the club instead of focusing on players inside the club? And I think in the case of DeLict and De Young, the the more and more I see of them, and I've tried to watch it as plenty as I can. Uh, IX games are not readily available, and it's really only highlight packages. But having watched that Germany-Netherlands game, I watched it twice, first just to watch it, and then a second time really to just hone in on those two players. And part of what stands out to me about DeLict and De Young is that I understand not getting eyes for other players at other clubs, but you also have to take into account that being Barcelona, if they want to continue to stay where they are in world standing and keep their position as a Champions League favorite year in and year out, even post-Messi, they're going to need to bring in these generational talents. And I think, I truly do believe that that is what DeLict and De Young represent at their positions. I I think they are generational talents that you do not see very often. And there is a, a place for them at the, you know, second, third, fourth best at their positions someday in the future. And when you there have them and they, in, in essence, they, they you feel like they're available, then you have to go out and get them. And if it winds up costing $130 million, that winds up being a bargain later on down the road. And it's very difficult where DeLict, being a 19-year-old captain of Ajax, especially with a center back, you don't really know what a center back is until they're maybe 23, 24 years old when they have started their, their real proje- uh, trajectory. But of what we've seen of DeLict, even at 19, while against Germany, he didn't have the match he had in March against Cristiano Ronaldo and Portugal, his quote-unquote poor game against Germany was still enough to help Jasper Silson get the shutout. As I like to say, you know, when I play pick a basketball, he's grown man strong, where he may be a teenager, but that's only in number. He's a, a, a man, he's a physical presence already, and he has that good head on his shoulders, it seems, to, to be able to deal with these things. And while DeLict has wanted away from Ajax, reportedly that uh, the club and his relationship broke down, and yet he comes back, returns as the captain, and seems to be a little more settled this year. And meanwhile, DeLict in that game against Germany, 94% of his passes, which again, it's not everything. Germany had the lion's share of possession, but De Jong only misplayed three passes all day. Only had one key pass, but again, it was on that second viewing when I'm watching and you watch how important he is to the side and how important he is to build up his ability to link the defense and attack. And that's not just, that's, that's not just words on the ears that that's actually watching the match and seeing that De Young he may drop back, but his ability to move forward. And more impressively to me was that it wasn't just picking up the pass from the goalkeeper, picking it up in between the two center backs and then moving forward and going through the lines. It was that he had this ability to dribble himself out of trouble, which created more space for everybody around him. He can pass from deep without issue, and his defensive positioning was more advanced than I even thought it was for De Jong, for a player in his early 20s. And the reason Thomas Mueller for Germany had mentioned him in his press conference was because De Jong was tasked with man-marking Mueller for part of the game. And again, it was on second viewing that I, I noticed that De Jong was with Mueller for, for so much of the early part of the game before things opened up after that first goal. But he did his job of man-marking Mueller, and Mueller didn't have much of an impact that we'd expect him to have. And now this is one just this is just one game, and it doesn't make 
two young careers, and we know the form that Germany has been in of late isn't great, but a match against Tony Cruz and Joshua Kimmich does a lot more for the eye test than it does against an Eredivisie opponent, because it is easy just to say, well, in the Eredivisie, they don't really play much defense, and as far as the attacking threats, obviously they're not the same thing they'll see in the Premier League or the Liga or Serie A, wherever they wind up. And that said, it's against Germany, and so if you show up against Germany and play like that, everybody is going to take notice. And so you can see the talent. And as I said, the argument that we shouldn't try to care about these kind of talents is that, I guess, Emma, I'll throw to you in that, how is it that when you get your kind of mind and your heart set, and especially when the social media train starts going off the rails, that how is it that you, that you aren't disappointed when talents like these come? And is there, is there a sense of entitlement you feel with Barcelona and Kules on social media in particular, where they feel like those kind of generational talents that Barcelona and sport report are, are so close to being tied to and they want to bid for these kind of young players and they find players that you say fit the acumen of the club. So what happens when these two players decide or go to different places for what seems to be the two together valued at $130 million? Uh, yeah, I think there it probably is a sense of entitlement. Um, I think it's because uh, most uh, Barcelona fans, we're not really seeing the talent that we have produced before from La Masia. It's not really coming through anymore. Um, Ernesto Valverde doesn't really want to promote from within. So it's easier to to look across Europe for these you know, young talents. And they, they absolutely are generational talents. And if we can sign them up now, at their really young ages and get them some experience with us and, you know, so they can learn our ways in the training sessions and how we do things. That will go a long way for them having continued success at, at Barcelona. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how disappointed personally I will be if we don't get them. I think it because it's, it's too early to say whether their careers will amount to anything even if they do have the talent i mean you don't know you know what can happen maybe we can pick them up at a later date i mean obviously it would be more optimal to pick them up now when we can when they're more um what's the word impressionable i think uh you know to be molded more more than set in their ways i think on social media there might be some sort of meltdown <laughs> if we don't, mm-hmm. if we don't pick them up, it, uh, the the Kool-Aid seem to have gone crazy for them. Yeah, just a number of even we'll say parody accounts dedicated to these two players is uh, is true. And you do bring up La Masia and where I guess we get back to that central question of are the rich clubs more dangerous in UCL or in the transfer market? That I would say I don't fear a team like PSG or Man City in the Champions League as much as I would fear Man City now, as I mentioned, in the future. They took Eric Garcia, La Masia's best center back, Adrian Bernabe, one of the top attacking midfielders. They're planning to grab EAX Moriba, who in January, when he turns 16, is when they're, they're planning on signing this contract. We even profiled him um, now last week on our weekly La Masia profile. He's a 15-year-old who's already making the bench for the Juvenil A squad and draws comparisons to a young Paul Pogba and so for them to go after Mariba as well, just setting themselves up to take three of the most promising players that La Masia had, not to mention City stake in Girona, 
you take into consideration the way that Barcelona snatches up all the best Catalan talent, which is an incredible amount of talent for such a small reason. It must uh, meet region, it must be said. But having City people right in their backyard now, I think is a frightening thing. And just the way that they're able to grab players from La Masia because they can offer when these players turn 16 much more in their wages than, than Barcelona. And it seems like Pep Segura and the rest of uh, the Barcelona board are catching up a little bit with these high release clauses and giving a little bit more, but they obviously don't want to break the bank for players that, as you mentioned, you don't know what they're going to be. And this is the Lick being 19 and the Young being, I think it's 21. And at those ages, players are even more developed than, as I said, a 15 year old playing in your academy. So you don't know what they're going to be. You looked at Adama Traore, you look at Gerard Delefeu. Just in the last 10, 15 years, there's a lot of good examples of kids who were the best at their age groups. And yet when it came to the bright lights of the Camp No, they just wound up being second best. And that's where I kind of get, you know, that, 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 that fear comes in that what is this going to look like for Barcelona now six, seven, eight years in the future if Man City continue I guess with Pep Guardiola at the helm and the ability to offer kids more at 16 years old, what is that going to do to Barcelona's future? That's why I'm more afraid than obviously in the Champions League this year. And this is where we'll start to transition to La Ronda and we'll talk about it in a second. But Man City, I think Barcelona still have, as Diego Simeone once famously said, that the teams were even, but Barcelona had Lionel Messi. And that's the whole point that not to put it all on Lionel Messi, but Barcelona, whether it's Sergio Busquets, Roberto, Alba, Umtiti, when healthy, Luis Suarez, Dembele, Coutinho, the whole crew, I think that team is still has the legs and if managed properly at the first team level, could be a better side than Man City in the Champions League. And I think the same can be said of PSG as well with all their attacking options. I would still put my money on Barcelona when push came to shove this season and maybe next season and the following season, but six, seven, eight years from now, that's where it gets worrisome. And the last thing I'll throw into this as last wrinkle, Emma, is that unfortunately, I think that the way that Dembele, Coutinho, and even Malcolm transfers with Roma were handled, I think it adds a, a, a level of hypocrisy to this conversation and this argument, because in those situations, we were the big money club in all of those circumstances. And the other clubs, gigantic clubs in their own right, had to deal with Barcelona throwing their weight around. And as we kind of mentioned, it puts a bad taste in my mouth thinking that Barcelona is not going to be able to try to grab these generational talents from other clubs early, like when they're able to sign their first professional contracts, but instead they have to wait until they're in their early 20s when their amounts become the Dembele level. Obviously, Dortmund was able to gouge Barcelona because of the Neymar and PSG saga, which obviously that's another thing that happened based on a rich, rich club being able to just pay that kind of money to operate that release clause. And so it's an it's an odd place for Barcelona to be when they make those negotiations. They're going after these players because they have this huge money that even gigantic clubs like Roma, Dortmund, and Liverpool have. They have more money than that. And yet they still aren't in the class of PSG or Man City. And I wouldn't want to be there, though. Uh, having the super money? Oh, yeah, absolutely not. I, I, I think it's it's nice, but I think it goes away, away from the more than a club. I, I think that it stops being more than a club if you have those kind of resources to be able to do that. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. I mean, yeah, there there is a certain amount of hypocrisy in this whole thing, because how we conducted the business with Malcolm was pretty bad. I mean, obviously, it wasn't just our fault. Um, Bordeaux didn't have to negotiate with us 
after agreeing with Roma, but we still flex the the financial muscle that we do have. Yeah, and like like yourself, I I am more fearful of what they can do in the transfer market than I am on the pitch right now. Like we have against Paris Saint Germain, of course, a couple of years ago there was the six one comeback. I and and they still have pretty much the same team. Um, I don't I don't fear them on the pitch at all. Manchester City I fear slightly more because they're better organized and I think Bebuerola knows how to play us at our own game. Uh, but I still think we would take them um, on the pitch. But yeah, the way they take the the way that they've been allowed to take the young talent that we have without so much uh, protestation from us because we've not realized that's what's happening. That's, that is worrying. That's, that is not something that should be happening at, at Barcelona. I think that they have more power than we do in the transfer market, and which is a, a, a kind of a ridiculous thing to say. Because we are Football Club Barcelona, we we are one of, you know, the greatest clubs in the world. But they do still have more more money to throw around than we do, and do it in a more obvious way than we do. But yeah, like you said, and when when Messi retires, when Piqué retires, when Alba retires, what are we gonna have that we've brought through ourselves? It's not gonna be much if we're going to be losing all of our talent at age 16, 17, um, unless we're going to be able to replace it by signing up young talent like De Jong and De Ligt. Right, certainly. And it does come down to the kind of talent that comes through the first team and even develops in our own first team. And so that brings us to our first question in La Ronda. As things will get a little more quick fire here, I think that question is basically answered for La Gran Pregunta, but Gotham starts off La Ronda asking the Spain meltdown. Well, and by meltdown, he means not being clinical, finishing in that 3-2 loss against England a few days ago. Depending on Barcelona's philosophy, does that stop us from getting a good striker behind Luis Suarez? Or do we have a wrong coach for players like Paco Alcacer? So, so just rewording this is that with a talent like Paco Alcacer and the hot streak that is obviously not necessarily just Barcelona and Dortmund and Spain news, but you see it everywhere that the Paco Alcacer has put the whole global soccer community on notice in just the way he's banging goals at the moment for both club and country. It's just astronomical figures. It's, it's what is it? It's six goals in 81 minutes for Dortmund currently and plenty more for, for country as well. And so when you have a player like Paco Alcacer firing on all cylinders, you do see that debate already in that, is it Valverde's fault because Paco Cather wasn't able to be the player that it seems like he is? Or is this just a hot player on a hot streak and he wouldn't have done this for Barcelona regardless? And that seems to be the, the catch-22 here. Yeah, I, I mean, I think maybe it's a mix of both. Um, I think I saw the stat that he has 10 goals in uh, 294 minutes of play this season. It's only started two matches for Dortmund from the start uh he's he's in a crazy uh vein of form now i obviously it didn't work for him at barcelona with the the setup that we have 
But, you know, he always um, gave 100% when he came on from the bench and he scored some pretty important goals for the season. Um, and right now, I think maybe we are missing that. Uh, whether he would have done this for Barcelona, I don't I don't know. It's really difficult to say, isn't it? He's, he's getting... He's probably playing in a, a system that benefits him more in Dortmund. I think I think Paco was just um, a victim of circumstances. It's not that he's a bad player; it's just that uh, wrong wrong player, wrong situation. And look how it's working out for him now in the right situation. Yeah, and speaking of right situations or wrong situations in in this instance. Michael asks, our, our last trophyless season was 2013-2014. That summer, we shipped away Cesc Fabregas, Alex Sanchez, Victor Vidal, and Puyo retired unceremoniously. Xavi almost left, and Tata Martino resigned just in time to not get sacked, and a bunch of youngsters were either sold or loaned out. If we go trophyless this season, who's going to pay the ultimate price? And let me add to that, Ranja kind of, let me sum up his question. He asks, is it too early to feel like that we could go trophy list or to have those kind of fears it's still that we seem to be harping on just one bad day in the champions league last year and we put all of our eggs in that champions league basket this year so are we being too pessimistic uh, particularly in la liga because valverde is at the helm or is it just that the the performances of the squad have created this we'll say lack of faith with 80 percent of the season left yeah it's way too early to um to say that we're going to go trophyless. I mean, obviously, it does appear that the emphasis this year is on the Champions League. And now that is probably going to be the more difficult competition to win that we are in. Um, it's way too early in the league. I mean, look at the results for the last couple league games. You know, Madrid after points, Atleti after points. It, it's, it's way too early to to say that we, we can't win the league and uh, a favorable Copa del Rey draw, you know, we can go all the way again. It's well within the realms of possibility. I think it's way, even for me as a Catalan, and I am I am a born pessimist, but even for me, it's way too pessimistic to say that we're, we're not going to win anything. But if the unthinkable happens, then, you know, Valverde is going to be the one who pays the ultimate price. And we have another question about Valverde coming from Rick. It says, kind of adding on to what Mike Miller asked, and I love the synergy in the Barcelona closed close Facebook group here, but once the manager starts saying he doesn't know how to rotate, I think those are very alarming signs. And this coming uh, from a few weeks ago, it seemed like Valverde had some difficulty in understanding what was needed at the end of a game and which substitutions were best. He, he brings up Tata Martino near the end of the season, not knowing what to do either having a tough time either with uh, Tito Valenova's death or just running out of gas and all that stress that comes with managing Barcelona. And so Valverde now only in year two, does it seem to you, Emma, that Valverde is not only feeling that pressure that we know exists, it's not something that's made up. We've seen Pep Guardiola burn out, and obviously it has to do with his style a lot when he burned out, but he burned out. Luis Enrique, obviously, we saw him burn out in that treble winning season. Martino... And obviously, we don't know what what kind of pressure that it put on Villanova as well. But and now with Alverde, it's it's a tough job. The Barcelona job is one of the toughest in the world. The way that there's pressure, the media pressure, and it just does weigh on people. Does it seem like he's already running out of gas? And when it comes down to it, it's not that. For me, I find that 
if Valverde leaves at the end of this season, it's going to have to do more with him than it is his results or what happens with him. I think if they go trophyless, it will be almost an, an, an amicable divide and that things will be much simpler to break that way. But that said, if he winds up getting another trophy, whether it be La Liga or in Champions League this year, it might be Valverde himself who calls and says, this might be it for me. Is that the impression that you get, Emma? Uh, yeah, I think I think last season, Ernesto Valverde has set himself a very difficult precedent to live up to because what he achieved last season was unimaginable at the start of the season. I, I didn't think we had this squad to go close to being unbeaten or winning a double. He's kind of a victim of his own success in a way, which is a which is a crazy thing to say. But as a Barcelona manager, he has to have that standard all the time now. Um, and last season in his rotation and, well, there wasn't much rotation, uh, but in his substitutions throughout... Uh, during games, he was much more reactive to the situations that were developing on the pitch. Whereas this season, uh, you can take the game against Valencia and say, look, uh, he, he obviously was struggling with what to do. He did not make a substitution until the 84th minute. And that's, you know, the game was there for winning. And it was crying out for Dembele to come on to have some pace. But... Uh, you know, he didn't. He didn't see that in time. Um, yeah, I think. I think that if we win a trophy, then maybe he will decide to call it a day. Because uh, there aren't many jobs in world football which come with the scrutiny and amounts of pressure that managing FC Barcelona does. You know, maybe Real Madrid, maybe Manchester United. I think that's. Maybe it, maybe Juventus, I, I don't know. Um, I think I don't hate Valverde as, as much as uh, the Kules on uh, social media seem to. I have a lot of respect for what he achieved last season. And I think that um, obviously the start of the season hasn't been perfect. Um, you know, a lot of players are clearly looking tired. Piquet, Rakitic, uh, the last game they looked pretty exhausted and I think this international break has probably come at a good time for them um, but I think I think if we do win a trophy then maybe he will decide to call it a day I think that the shelf life of a Barcelona manager is going to become shorter and shorter uh, as time goes by because that's the amount of pressure that they're under and like I say, I think I think he's very much a victim of last season's success at the moment. Yeah, and most top jobs are only two or three years. I think that should be said. It's not just Barcelona. It's Zidane's, Zidane's time at Real Madrid. Or you look at uh, the top jobs at Man United of late, Chelsea. And you can win the league one year. And then within a year, if things go wrong or don't go the way that you're winning everything, then a manager, you restart. Well, two more questions here. And these are two big ones, so we'll try to get this one wrapped up. Douglas asks, what are some of the more realistic center back targets a club could approach in January? Is it worth paying through the nose for someone in the winter instead of paying through the nose for Delict in the summer? 
And uh, Douglas, I'd love to answer your question, but I'm going to actually try to be as diplomatic as possible with this one, uh, not to be Ernesto Valverde diplomatic, but it seems like the timetable for injury for Thomas Vermeulen is six weeks. Um, TD is also reportedly could potentially be back by the end of November, beginning of December, which means both Vermeulen and Umtiti are back before the January transfer window. And I think this is also a moment where Barcelona have to take a hard look at themselves. And there are some matches now coming up. We are halfway through October, so halfway through this very, very difficult stretch of, of matches all in a row with this international break breaking it up. And, of course, El Clasico in now less than two weeks' time. And with these heavy matches coming, Sevilla on the weekend, which is our final question, Jorge Cuenca for the B team, the left-footed center back who's been working with Chumi, who we also profiled as a La Masia profile, um, and as well as Oscar Mangueza. With those kind of three center backs, that you do have a little bit of depth there at the B position where Barcelona B, led by first-team player Cruzolini, is high-flying right now. They got another victory. Now six straight matches with points and uh, Lenny had another brace this past week they're playing well and on the other side the defense led by Cuenca is also playing pretty well and he may just still be a teenager but he's a player that at least needs to be on your bench I think he's the guy that if Langlet and PK can't go he's a guy that can come in and maybe give 20 or 30 minutes of rest for PK I think to not trust that a Barcelona B player of his stature cannot handle that job I think that says more about the club than all of what we've talked about in the transfer window. I think you go so far away from what the club's trying to do. If you can't even do that with a game, we'll say like Rio Vallecano upcoming shortly, if that's a game that you don't really take a hard look at Quank and go, maybe he can probably start a match like Vallecano, who, again, a recently promoted side, who he played against last year in the Segunda Division. And while Barcelona B didn't have the results that Vallecano did last year, Cuenca is still again, the best center back that Barca B has, has to offer. And if you can't even take from there for a few weeks, for the six-week window to have him supplement the other two in Langlet or PK off the bench, or again, get an occasional start against a side like Rayo, if you can't even do that, then again, I think that says a much more negative thing about the club than worrying about what's happening in the January transfer window. Now, if Umtiti has a major setback and Vermelon, who's known for his setbacks, if those two have issues then I think we'll revisit that in a few weeks and see if there needs to be a realistic center back option to be brought in in January. Because I think Delict, you can almost count him out. Overmars has even said it's a 0% chance in January. And for me, I would rather spend the money in the summer for Delict and not bring in somebody in, we'll say the short term, who's just going to be another one on the pecking order that Delict would have to worry about. I think that Barcelona still, as much as there is a crisis and only two healthy first team center backs, Barcelona still, I think, have the ability and a little bit of depth enough to survive the the supposed six weeks that it's going to take before one of the two other first-team options returns. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think uh, Twinka, I think, would be great to bring on uh, into the first team just for that bit of experience like against Vallecano. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that would be great. Anybody, if we do sign somebody... Uh, centre-back in uh, January. I saw is being linked with Liverpool centre-back uh, Dejan Lovren today, which uh, is an interesting one. Anybody that we sign in January, I think, is going to be as a result of people panicking. 
because I, I don't think I don't think we need to sign anybody in January with the injury reports. You know, the the injury news that we've had today, the, that Umtiti will be back before uh, the transfer window. Vermeulen will probably be back before that as well. At bringing Fuenca, I think I think that would be fine as long as you know Piquet and Longley can stay fit. You know, we can shuffle around and try to play with with what we've got. I I don't think I think signing Delict in the summer would be proactive. Anything that we do now will be reacting to uh, uh, the situation that we're in, and I don't think that's necessarily the best use of our money right now. Yeah, I completely agree. And looking ahead to the Sevilla game, now we know that it'll be PK and Linglet as the center backs, but Mitko asked, how do you think Valverde should approach the game? Now, he expects them to run hard, and they've been pressing, and again, we even saw the way they absolutely dismantled Real Madrid a few weeks ago, um, trying to get out on that counterattack. And given how unstable the defense has been, it makes you think that maybe a conservative approach, and we know that Valverde is very comfortable with a conservative approach, particularly in these big games, but they are at home. This is a match for the top of the league. Uh, Sevilla currently number one, followed by Atletico Madrid and Barcelona and Real Madrid behind them. It's at the Camp Nou. So if you're Valverde, Emma, do you take a conservative approach and just try to get top of the league being at home, thinking that that'll get the job done? Or do you take the game to Sevilla? I... Uh, if I was Valverde, I think that maybe we have to be slightly less cautious <laughs> in this match. Pablo Machin is a great coach at Sevilla. He's he's very tactically adept. He he will he will set up his team to play pretty conservatively. I think I don't think they will necessarily go for it as much as if this game was at the. Uh, Bichuan. Um, I think that it might be beneficial for Valverde to play the strongest 11 that he can and to uh, maybe just loosen the reins a little. Maybe let them attack a little more. Because I think that's, that's, that's what's going to get us the win. If we play if we play, try to play too conservatively with the um, amount of mistakes that have been coming from, uh, you know, Piquet, for example, I don't think that we can afford to sit off them and just and be conservative because that's that panic that we've seen recently in the defensive areas is, is still going to be there. It's it's if that starts then you know. It'll get into the crowds, and then it will become tense, and then it's just a recipe for disaster. So I think that we need to be, uh, I think we need to go at them. We need to attack. We need to see some, um, we need to see some control in mid the midfield areas. We need to, yeah, we need to, we need to attack them. I, I hope. I hope that he listens to this. <laughs> I hope that, uh, I hope that, uh, he gets that message that we need to. I think even you know the game against Valencia would speak to him now. Surely having time to reflect that we could have just attacked a little more and we could have won that match. And if we're not attacking, I come now, then that's 
that's not a good sign with Inter Milan coming up and Clasico coming up. Yeah, I agree with that. With Inter Milan and El Clasico in, in the next week following Sevilla, just looking at the way Sevilla had had success this year, I think this is a match that is crying out for Dembele. And if, so let's say Sevilla punches Barcelona in the mouth like they did Real Madrid, they win 3 nothing, embarrass Barcelona at home, I think, uh, unfortunately, going into it, uh, you know, we'll be critical of them at that point, but you have a player like Dembele, you have a, a certain style that he brings, and I don't expect to see a player like Malcolm in this kind of big game, but you have those two kind of profiles sitting there on your bench, and while the Arthur in midfield, Coutinho at left wing option has you know, has been a revelation, uh, particularly against Tottenham and played decent against Valencia until, as as you said, late on, Barcelona just didn't push the way they should have. If you can't trust that a player like Dembele in the way that Barcelona should be able to play attacking and pressing and going at an opponent, if you, if you have lost the faith that they can do that, I think you've lost a, a little more faith in the team than I, I think we're ready to do. It's October, I think there still has to be a belief that those kind of players can play that way, can go at an opponent and can succeed. You know, I, I think to, to, to be scared and to already be putting out lineups that you think are just going to get the ball over the line enough, I, I don't think gets the job done. Um, and you want the best starting 11. So Arthur and Coutinho together in the in center mid and left wing respectively have been, that was the best performance we saw against Tottenham of the year. But that said, they have to be able to do multiple things. And it's not even about rotation this time around. I, I think it's about playing a different way and being at home, taking it to an opponent. And that's what I'd like to see. Because again, Real Madrid was on the road. Sevilla was at home. And that arena, as you mentioned, went absolutely bonkers during that match. And particularly with a guy like Andre Silva, who is going to be a challenge for Langlet and PK with Busquets and Rakitic also playing in the international break. They can keep their wits about them defensively, put some trust in your attackers to do what they do best and attack. Well, we tried to do what we do best, Emma, and that is have another fantastic edition of the Barcelona podcast. Thanks so much to our listener questions as well. Thanks for you, the listeners, for tuning in again. You can tap in your app and check out the show notes to subscribe to the show. You can find us on social media too. We're on Twitter at the Barcelona pod or at Hilton D13 for me. On Instagram, at the Barcelona Pod, our closed Facebook group, who asks those questions, is tbpod.link backslash group for deeper dives and discussions. And you can also help us out on Patreon to continue making these shows at tbpod.link backslash Patreon. And Emma, where can they find you? Uh, on Twitter, I am at emgabrielgarcia. And on Instagram, I am at uh, emmagabrielgarcia, my full name. So check her out there as well. Those are in the show notes as well. And thanks so much again for you listening to the Barcelona podcast. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon in Forza Barca.